Do you ever tell someone to do something only to look at them doing it and say to them, why are you doing it like that? Why are you doing it like that? Growing up in my household, there was only one dishwasher master, and that was my dad. My dad was the dishwasher master. Only he knew how to set the dishwasher perfectly. And so every time dad would ask me, Jimmy, can you, James actually, James, can you set up the dishwasher to be packed? It was always a trap. Always a trap. I would begin stacking the dishwasher, hesitantly thinking, how does he want to do this? put the dish here, put the knives here, thinking, okay, I just got to make sure I get this right. But sure enough, dad would come around and say to me, why are you doing it like that? And he'd push me out of the way and grumble his way through doing it correctly and properly. Has anyone ever done that before? I feel like it's a bit of a dad thing to do amongst us. I've done that as well. I discovered when you're newly married, this comes up quite a bit. So I've been married for two years now, and, and so when it comes to hanging washing, me and Katie are a little different, as I've discovered. I like to hang things of a system in order to it. Undies together, socks together, t-shirts together. Katie just hangs. She just puts it out there and hangs it, and it frustrates me. And I go, why are you doing it like that? Where is the order? Where is the system? How does this work? And she goes to me. She sees me. She's watching me slowly put it all together and she's like what are you doing just hang it for goodness sake and so she's saying to me and I'm saying to her why are you doing it like that when (laughs) when we see someone do something we don't understand we often tell ask them the question why are you doing it like that because we have expectations of how things should be done and people if they don't meet our expectations or do things differently we ask that question when it comes to doing household chores like washing clothes and like stacking a dishwasher, you know, the difference doesn't really matter in the end. The dishes will get washed, and the, uh, the clothes will dry eventually. But when it comes to things like running a business, running a school, running a hospital, or even a nation, how these things are done actually do matter. And this is where the question, why are you doing it like that, actually becomes a legitimate question to ask, especially when we can see something being done that we don't think is going to lead to it being flourishing into the goodness of what we hope for. And when we see something being done wrong or we see something being done in the wrong kind of way, we often begin to doubt the motive of the person doing it or the party or the group of people doing it, and we doubt the outcome will be good for us. And that's where the question becomes legitimate. Why are you doing it like that? It's a question many people ask about God himself. If he is good and righteous, hates evil, how can he let so much evil happen in this world? How can this world be filled with so much grief and pain? If he is doing something about it, what is he doing about it? And why is he doing it like this? It's a question many of my friends and colleagues have asked in the past, I'm sure many of your friends or neighbours or family members have asked this question as well. If God is really good, why is there so much evil? What is he doing about it and why is he doing it like that? Stephen Fry captures the posture of our secular West has towards God when it comes to this particular question. In an interview, he's asked what would he say to God if he was to die and turned out God was real? What would he say to him in light of what he thinks about God himself? He says this. This is his answer. Bone cancer in children? What's that about? How dare you? How dare you create a world where there is such misery 
That's not our fault. It's not right. It's utterly, utterly evil. Why should I respect a capricious, mean-minded, stupid God who creates a world which is so full of injustice and pain? That's what Stephen Fry is going to say to God when he meets him face to face. We might gasp and kind of recoil at the audacity he has to, to say such things to his own creator and God. But Fry, and though, and though Fry postulates as an intellectual and in his arrogance, there are real people who have suffered in these kinds of ways that he's mentioned, and they are asking the same question as well, with the same conclusion about God. Either God's not in control or he can't be good if he allows these things to happen in our world. How are we as Christians supposed to respond? What are we supposed to do? Especially if we also struggle at times, when we see evil in our own life, or we have struggles in our own life, how do we deal with the question, is God still good in this? Why are you doing it like that? This is exactly what Habakkuk does here in this passage. In his first speech, you'll remember, he is praying to God, God, do something about the immorality and the injustice that we see in our own people. These people are hurting each other, oppressing the poor, doing wicked things. And, Lord, they have forsaken your law. They have forsaken your word. It was only a generation before that they had just rediscovered the book of the law by Josiah and the temple as they were rebuilding it. And now, a generation later, they have forgotten it once more, back to worshipping idols and back to oppressing each other, the rich oppressing the poor. It's Habakkuk saying, Lord, do something. Aren't you a righteous and good God? Do something. And now we come to the second prayer, the second speech. And some time has passed. God has done what he has said he would do. He has raised a nation called the Babylonians. A nation we read about in verse 6 saying, ruthless and impetuous people who swoop across the whole earth to see his dwellings, not their own. This foreign nation was raised up to be God's agent of his judgment and punishment upon the people of Judah. And Habakkuk has lived through this moment. He's lived through all of what God's done through Babylon. And he's now thinking, whoa, that was intense. These people are more evil than our own people. How could God use such a nation to punish us, to discipline us? His speech is a way of saying, why are you doing it like that? In verse 14, he describes his own people, the people of Judah, as being made like the fish of the sea, left exposed and helpless to, to anyone who wants to conquer them, with no ruler to protect them. You could say that this is the ancient form of shooting fish in a barrel. This is how they are like. They are exposed, open to being attacked, vulnerable, except they wouldn't their suffering wouldn't be so quick. We read in verse 15 that, that the Babylonians, they pull them up by the hooks and gather them in his net. They capture and rejoice in their capture, parade them around, display their strength and their power. They mock the people of Judah and they result in worshipping their nets, worshipping the instruments of torture and war and violence. We read in verse 16, Therefore he sacrifices to his net and burns incense to his dragnet, for by his net he lives in luxury and enjoys the choicest food. War and violence is what distinguishes people from the people of Judah. They weren't simply immoral people. War, 
violence, aggression, was a virtue to them. It was the means by which they could enjoy life and life to the full. Oppression was what they did to get the choicest foods and to live in the best and luxurious places. And so Habakkuk surveys what is going on here at this moment, and he's thinking, I don't understand. They seem relentless. They're emptying their nets to fill them back up again. There seems to be no end to this vicious cycle. So his question is, is why are you doing it like this? Or more literally in verse, six, in verse 13, why are you silent while the wicked swallow up those more righteous than themselves? God, you who can't tolerate evil, you who can't even look upon it, how can you bring justice in this way? How do we make sense of all of this, if our God is a God of love and righteousness. And this question matters. It matters a lot. Because only our God, the God of Israel, the God of the Bible, only He reveals Himself to be a good and gracious God. Every other God of the Old Testament didn't matter. They could do whatever they wanted, and people feared their gods. The Babylonians, violence is a virtue. But our God, the God of the Bible, revealed himself to be a good and righteous and just God. And so the question, why are you doing it like this? It matters. It does really matter. So what do we do when we begin to doubt the goodness and the love of God in the face of evil and wickedness in the world at large, but also in our own life? When we pray to God, take this away from me, this affirmity, this sickness, this struggle, and it only seems to increase. What do we do in that moment? How can we continue to see God as good and loving when what we see in front of us is suffering and evil? Habakkuk's response provides a good place to begin. This morning is not about getting the answers to the, to the why of evil. This morning is about providing a way forward, remembering who God is and what he's done for us, and remembering who we are and what our role is in all this as well. So firstly, we aren't to forget who God is and what he has done for us. He starts in verse 12. Lord, are you not from everlasting? My God, my Holy One, you will never die. You, Lord, have appointed them to execute judgment. You, my rock, have ordained them to punish. Habakkuk acknowledges that God as the eternal and everlasting God, holy in that he is unlike anyone else, set apart completely from all of creation and precious and special. And by declaring that to be true, by declaring that is who God is, he is recognizing that's who he's not. Habakkuk is not eternal and not holy. And by declaring that to be true, he recognizes that God is saying, I'm the only one who is like this. And he also read, we read, you will never die. That can be also translated to, we will never die. And that is because the scribal community, the Masoretes, who preserved the prophecies in the documents of the Old Testament, they translated that as, we will never die, because they understood Habakkuk to be saying that by God saying he is from everlasting, that he is eternal, that means that those who trusted him and belonged to God's people will also live forever as well. God's people and the life of God's people was so tied up with God that for God to live would mean that his people would live forever 
as well. When God gave them the law all the way back in Exodus, it was a sign that he would be their God and they would be his people. And because the God of this promise is from everlasting, that means as long as God lives, they will live as well. Any kind of punishment then is not for the purpose of destruction, devastation, but for the sake of justice and discipline and correction, for the sake of restoring his people, which is why in one breath, Habakkuk can say, you ordained them to execute judgment. In the same breath, also say, you are my rock. You are my salvation. Habakkuk knows God has bound himself to his people. So even in the face of judgment, God is still his rock, his life upon which he lives. He remembers who God is and what he's done and remembers that God is good. In verse 13, we read, Your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrong. He remembers in the past how God has dealt with injustice before, all his own people and the nations as well. He remembers what the judges were like. He remembers what people in the Exodus time, in the wanderings of Egypt were like. God has punished and restored in the past. He knows God is good. He knows God is just. And within that context... Acknowledging all these things, that he begins to express his doubts and his questions. Why then do you tolerate the treacherous? Why are you silent while the wicked swallow up those more righteous than themselves? This is a fair complaint because it seems there to be something to be at odds with God that he knows about and what he sees happening before him. But this question is asked within the context of knowing who God is and what he has done for his people. So Habakkuk is expressing to God an internal struggle here. He's not trying to accuse God of being evil. He's not saying, God, prove yourself to me that you're still good. He's expressing to God, God, I am limited. I am finite. I am not like you. You are eternal and powerful and holy. God, I need your help to understand what you're doing here. He's not doing what Stephen Fry does. Stephen Fry accuses and says, I've already made up my mind. Here's my verdict. You don't measure up. You're found wanting. But Habakkuk knows what Isaiah will write. For my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. The problem with Fry, Stephen Fry, is that he attempts to ascend to the place where God resides. He thinks he can transcend his own creatureliness, his own limitations, and sit on par with God himself, as if to say that his thoughts and God's thoughts are the same level. But the only thing he exceeds in doing is contending against the God of his own imagination, not the true and living God of the Bible. When our prayers unanswered the way we hoped, when things get worse instead of better in our life, when we look on our world and we think, how can there be so much evil if a loving God is in control? We must follow Habakkuk's example. We mustn't jump straight to questioning, but we must reflect deeply on who our God is and what he has done, lest we make the mistake We mistake the true living God for a caricature who doesn't actually exist. 
must remember that indeed the God we worship not only bound himself in promise to, to Israel, but he came down from heaven to earth and bound himself in flesh in Jesus Christ. Heaven dwelling on earth. God's radical approval of humanity as God resided in Jesus Christ in human flesh. And he did it for the sake of taking on evil and suffering that we ourselves face. We watch as Jesus heals the sick, gives sight to the blind, raises the dead, makes the lame walk. He comes to fight off the powers of evil and death as a man. He forgives sin. And he does all these things to point towards what he was going to do on the cross for us to die and take our place. Where the righteous one, par excellence, would be swallowed up by the wicked. And so when Habakkuk says to God, why do you let the righteous be swallowed up by the wicked people? God knows all too well what that's like. He's experienced it through his own son. And as Peter puts it, he did it for us, the righteous, for the unrighteous, to bring us to God. So before we dare complain to God about evil, we must recognize that our God knows what we're talking about. He has come face to face with it, and he is doing something about it. And that might be really hard to hear this morning. I get that, because pain is very real for us, I imagine. I imagine there's some of you here this morning who've experienced great suffering, and you've prayed about it, and it's only increased. And you think, what is God doing? But we mustn't become like those like Stephen Fry. We mustn't throw the fists in the air and seek to accuse God of being evil. Because all we'll do at succeeding is arguing against the God of our own imagination. Rather, we must follow Habakkuk's example. Stephen Fry leaves us no less satisfied or no less able to do anything about it. But the way of Habakkuk gives us a way forward, trusting that he is doing something about it, remembering what he's done for us in Jesus Christ so that we can respond and live the way he wants us to live in light of what's going on. As we come to the second point here, we remember who God is and what he's done for us and therefore who we are and what our role is in all of this as well. Look at verse, sorry, chapter 2, verse 1. I will stand at my watch and station myself on the ramparts. I will look to see what he will say to me and what answer I am to give to this complaint. Ramparts were defensive walls that surrounded the whole city on which you could patrol and keep watch for the enemy that was approaching than to warn the city that the enemy was coming. Habakkuk saw his prophetic office being a similar kind of office to that of a watchman. He would stand and wait for God's word. And if God's word meant devastation for the city of uh, Jerusalem, for Judah, then he would report that back to the people of Judah, hoping they would repent and turn back to God. But here, he's not waiting for a prophecy. He's waiting for an answer. He's waiting for an answer uh, from God himself about his questions and doubts about his goodness and his justice. So in that moment, he stands on behalf of the people of God, on behalf of the righteous who are suffering, asking why, and he waits. Even in the midst of doubt, he will not 
abandon his calling to minister to the people of God. He will not succumb to the wisdom of the world. He will not accuse God of being evil when he knows it's not true. He will not scoff and revile God because he doesn't fit into his view of who God should be. Instead, he will wait for God to speak. And he'll continue his role of mediating the word of God to the people. Because that is what Judah needs in this moment. Not a prophet who will shake the fist at God and, and accuse him of being evil, but who will wait, who remembers and waits for God to speak. And whilst prophecy is, in this kind of way, is finished with the revelation of Jesus Christ, we continue to be a kind of prophets and priests, that is, proclaimers of God's word, as we have it here in the Bible, in Scripture. And we continue to be mediators of God's presence as his spirit dwells in us. 1 Peter mentions how we're a royal priesthood in whom the spirit of God dwells. Christ's death and resurrection ushered in a new era where God's spirit would descend upon all who would believe and would prophesy and that this would be to proclaim the word of God. And the prophet Joel prophesied about this and in in Acts 2, Peter confirmed this. And so whilst the time of prophecy in the sense of Habakkuk is over, we are nonetheless a prophetic voice in our world today of what God is doing. And just as Judah needed Habakkuk to lament and at the same time to trust in God and wait for him to answer, our world needs us, the church, to lament on their behalf in a way that continues to trust in God and to proclaim his word of hope to a hurting and broken world. We are called to lament with our world to show that we get it. We struggle too. We understand your confusion. But we are to demonstrate to them as we practice ourselves, lifting up our eyes away from the world and up to God and trusting in him, seeking the wisdom that comes from heaven. We take up our station not along the ramparts of the city, but in the gathering of the people of God in in church. In this gathering, we both express our lament, our fear, our struggle, our pain, as well as our trust. And we say with Habakkuk, you are from everlasting. You are my rock. And we do this not only for ourselves, but for our neighbours, for all of Balgaula, for our city. We pray for our world. We pray on behalf of our world. Oh Lord, how long? As well as your kingdom come, your will be done. On the surface, our world is ready to throw the fist up at God and shake it in anger, self-righteous and proud, thinking they know better. But deep down, they are anxious and afraid. And we can resonate with that because we ourselves are not immune to to evil and suffering. But the difference between us and them is that we can still be a non-anxious presence in our world today because of the hope that we have in Jesus. We trust in him. And we are called to help others to put their trust in him as well. To lament with them and to help them lift up their eyes to heaven instead. We 
we have come to know the good shepherd, the God who saves, the one who is from everlasting, and we trust in him to respond. We trust in his word and we declare his word to those outside our worlds as well as to each other. And in Habakkuk's day, in our own day, that word is that the righteous will live by faith. From verse 4. Habakkuk doesn't get the answer to why God has chosen a more evil nation to execute his judgment against his own people. But God's answer to Habakkuk is a way forward through the grief and the pain and the suffering and the evil, the punishment and discipline. It's those who continue to trust in God, they will live. Can you imagine hearing that from God, being Habakkuk? You've experienced so many of your own people being carted off to Babylon. You've seen so many livelihoods destroyed. You've seen the wicked people of Judah make deals with the wicked people of Babylon and live. And yet the righteous ones have died and lost everything. You've heard this and you've said to yourself, how can the righteous person live by faith? How is that possible? Commentator John Goldingay puts it as if God is saying to Habakkuk in this moment, you must not let the evidence of your own eyes contradict the truth, the real truth. God is no fool. He knows the Babylonians are evil, that their soul is puffed up and not upright within them. As the first half of verse 4 puts it, they will get what is coming to them. They will not escape judgment. But for now, God's answer to Habakkuk is to not let the evidence of his own eyes, what he sees around himself, contradict the real truth, what he knows to be true. God is still sovereign. He is still in control. And although the righteous are being swallowed up by the wicked, none of that can threaten God's promise to be their God and they his people. His people, as long as they keep trusting him for salvation, living in obedience to him, they can be saved. They will live. And as we gather in community here and go out from here individually, we proclaim through word and deed that the way forward in a world full of suffering and pain, all kinds of evil and brokenness, where things don't make any sense, is to continue to trust in Jesus, that he is Lord. He is the righteous one who died for us, the unrighteous, and that we might become righteous and live by trusting and remaining steadfast in our faith. The righteous will live by faith. And although we might face such great suffering and evil in our own life and end up being swallowed up by death itself, we believe in the one that has power over the grave, who gives us new life, and who will return to give us new bodies as well. What our world, who has experienced great evil, needs to know is that those who trust in Jesus will live that evil and death will not undo God's promises to save. And in fact, such chaos, evil, death, such things have been put on notice. God has begun to deal with them on the cross, and when Jesus returns, we'll finish the battle once and for all. Perhaps some of you this morning are facing such evil in your own life, you think that can't be necessarily true. I can't wait that long. Or it can't be true at all. God's word to you is in verse 3 of chapter 2. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. 
it will not delay. Just as the Babylonians will not have the last say, neither will evil we face in our own lifetime, personally or more broadly. Faith will prevail. The righteous will be vindicated and all who trust in Jesus will live. Until that time, our role as God's people is to keep lamenting, to keep crying out to God, but with hearts full of hope and a great sense of trust in God's goodness and love and grace and care. Because the good news is that the righteous will live by faith and no evil can destroy those who live by faith because the righteous one died to bring us to, to God himself. That is our hope in these dark times. That is what God is doing. And it's the hope our friends and our neighbours and our colleagues need also. The good news that the righteous will live by faith.